Our text words today will be from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 9 to 13. Leviticus 26, 9 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to walk upright. Amen. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Our great God and Father, we praise and honor you, and we confess and acknowledge that we are miserable sinners, and considered in ourselves we're guilty and unworthy to ever approach your holy presence. We thank you so much that you have received us in Christ, and we ask you all receive us in Christ now as we covenant together and we unite in worship together in his name. Renew us by your spirit and we pray would you illuminate our minds to understand the truth of your word. Give us hearts enlivened with repentance to respond to your word. We pray would you increase our faith to more clearly look to Christ, increase our love for you. And oh God, we ask you this day, would you awaken and convert sinners in our midst, and we pray this in Jesus' name and for the great glory of your name. Amen. Dear people of God, one way that we could sum up the message of the entire Bible is to say that God reclaims and redeems and reconciles sinners unto himself in Christ. This theme runs throughout the entire scriptures, including at the beginning here in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. We find this theme in the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, where he tells the parable about the lost sheep. Remember, the shepherd had a hundred sheep. One of those sheep went astray and left the fold. And Jesus asked the people, what do you think that shepherd will do? Will he not leave the ninety and nine in the fold And go out into the mountains to find that one lost sheep and bring him back. And Jesus summarizes that parable in this way in Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. You see this same language at the conversion of Zacchaeus, that crooked extortioner, that chief tax collector who out of Curiosity had climbed up in the tree to see Jesus as Jesus passed by. And remember, Jesus points and looks at him and tells him to come down. I must come and stay at your house today, Jesus says. Zacchaeus repents of his sins. Christ comes to stay at his house that day. Jesus says this day has salvation visited This son of Abraham, and he sums it up this way, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There's this pattern throughout Holy Scripture from the beginning at the fall all the way through that God in grace pursues guilty sinners, reconciles them 
to himself in Christ and brings them to dwell in eternal happiness in his holy presence. Another picture of it we read in the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea's life was a living allegory of God's love for Israel, the text tells us in Hosea. And God commands that prophet to to marry a woman who is unfaithful and is a prostitute. And sure enough, after Hosea marries Gomer, she begins to cheat on him and she begins to be unfaithful, symbolizing Israel who had sinned and they had run after idols and they had spiritually committed adultery against God. And yet, Hosea 3 tells us, after Gomer had left Hosea and she had gone so low that she had even ended up in slavery. She was under a bond price and had to be redeemed, to be freed. Hosea 3 tells us, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and loved the raising cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. You can imagine unfaithful Gomer, Hosea's wife, there at the slave auction. She's not worth much anymore. Most husbands would turn their back and say, just let her go. I don't want her back. Look how wicked she's been. Look how unfaithful she's been. But as a living allegory of God's love for Israel, unfaithful Israel... Hosea steps up, he pays the price to redeem her, and he says to her, You shall stay with me many days, and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too will I be toward you. It's the same pattern of sinners who go astray. God pursues them and redeems them and brings them back to live with Himself in His holy presence. The book of Leviticus is no exception. This seek and save and dwell pattern is exactly what God has done for Israel. When we come to the book of Leviticus, we see it leading up to this. In the book of Genesis, by His grace, after the fall, God pursues fallen sinners. He pursues sinful mankind and He chooses and sets apart a people unto Himself, the Hebrews, through whom He will bring the Savior. In the book of Exodus, by His grace, God redeems His people from slavery, as we sung in the 105th Psalm. And now in the book of Leviticus, God brings His people to dwell with Him at His holy tabernacle on their way to dwell with Him in the promised land. And in this tabernacle service, in the priesthood and the sacrifices, as it points ahead to Jesus Christ, and as we read this morning where God said, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This is just a small foretaste of the fullness of all this in Christ, who was to come, and who now has come. 
So this is the theme of the book of Leviticus leading up through the book of Genesis and Exodus and now to Leviticus, that in the person and work of the incarnate Jesus Christ, God has made a way for unholy sinners to live in His holy presence. That's the theme of the book. And our consideration today, our theme today is simply this. The God of all grace has come to live with you. We'll see it in three basic headings. First, the God of all grace has come to live with you in His reclaiming grace. Reclaiming grace. This is the book of Genesis. In the fall, Adam and Eve ruin everything by sin. But God in grace sets out to reclaim them. Just like that shepherd left the fold that Jesus told about and left the 99 to go pursue the lost sheep and to bring it back unto Himself. Just like Jesus Christ pursues crooked, dishonest Zacchaeus and brings him back to Himself and redeems him. Just like Hosea pursued unfaithful Gomer. God pursues guilty sinners to reclaim them. And even after you've sinned your worst... God comes after you, dear sinner, in this reclaiming grace, even after you've sinned your worst. We see this at the opening of the book of Genesis. When our first parents sinned against God, and we sometimes, as we've, begun, we've become familiar with this, we can lose the gravity of what happened when our first parents sinned. Oh, what a grave situation it was. What a crisis for the entire human race. If it were not for the grace of God, all hope would be lost. And I can't sum it up as well as one of our forefathers, Nehemiah Cox, put it. So I'll read to you what he reminds us of concerning the moment when Adam sinned in the garden. Cox reminds us that here the whole creation of this visible world became liable to the destruction with fallen man as an inheritance forfeited by his treason against the supreme majesty. By the sin of man, the frame of earth and heaven made for his service and delight was loosed, and their foundation so shaken as would have issued in an utter ruin had not Christ interposed and upheld their pillars." If the curse had been immediately executed in its rigor with these desolations following, there was a hell prepared for man. For suppose, I pray you, all the lights of heaven to be put out, the whole order, symmetry, and beauty of the creation to be destroyed, and all reduced to a chaos of confusion and horrid darkness about man, and the burning wrath of God kindled on him. Now cast into the jaws of eternal despair and tormented by a worm that never dies. Think, I say you, on this, and you'll hardly be able to conceive of the state more dreadful and dismal than the one on which man stood at the very brink. The good God of glory had just created man in His image to know and love God and enjoy Him forever. And man raises his fist of rebellion against God almost immediately and sins against God. And if it were not for God's grace, all hope was lost. Man had sinned his worst. 
But yet God pursues sinners in grace. We find this right after the account of the fall in Genesis 3. God comes walking through the cool of the day where he would fellowship with man every day in the garden. And when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, it tells us that Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? There they are, naked, exposed in their sin. God knows their sin and God is coming to them for them to give an account of themselves before God. They're terrified. They they try to run and hide. Yet God pursues them. God speaks and calls out to them. And oh dear sinner, this very day, you stand before God. God knows all your sin. Before whom? Scripture tells us all things are naked and exposed to His view. He knows what goes on in the light and what goes on in the dark. He knows our thoughts are far off. There you are as Adam and Eve, naked and afraid spiritually. And yet God, by His grace, calls out to you just as much as God called to them in the garden. God calls to you now through the preaching of His Holy Word. God did not leave them in that condition being naked and terrified in the guilt of their sin. God does not strike them down to hell that moment like they deserved. And like Nehemiah Cox described, what would have happened to the whole universe. But rather, Scripture tells us, In Genesis 3.21, that the Lord made tunics of skin, or robes of skin, animal skins, to clothe Adam and Eve. He is willing to make a substitute as a sacrifice. He is willing that an animal will die in their place. The law says, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. God is willing this day for a substitute to die in their place, and He clothes them with those animal skins. And this is foreshadowing the very work of Christ, our substitute, and how we are covered in His robes of righteousness. Oh, what grace! God provides a substitute. Not only this, He gives you the hope. He gives sinners the hope of the covenant of grace right after they had done their very worst. They would sinned their worst. In Genesis 3.15, God gives that great promise of the covenant of grace that the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And He's describing Christ's death on the cross. The, the serpent will strike His heel, but He will crush the serpent's head. And as this promise of this covenant is further revealed and it comes to its its fullness under the new covenant, part of the implication of what God is saying in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent is this. What He says in the new covenant that their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. This is one of the benefits of Christ, the skull-crushing seed of the woman who comes into the world To live and die in our place. And He gives them this glorious promise right after they had sinned so grievously against God. An old dear sinner. God holds forth this message of hope to you. He holds forth this gospel to you. 
even in the very worst of your sin, even in your worst guilt and forsaking of God. See what grace, what grace He pursues you with. He pursues you in this reclaiming grace when you've been banished from God's presence, just like Adam and Eve. God drove them out of the garden and He posted those fiery angels with fiery swords at the entrance of the garden. But God will not give up on them. He'll not banish them forever. God in grace pursues them. He will bring them back. They've been cast out of the paradise of God, but God will bring them back. And we see a, a, a faint instance, a small instance of this with the dying thief on the cross, that guilty sinner, when he looks to Jesus, in that moment Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. He's bringing sinners back to a greater paradise, back to fellowship with God after we've been banished out of His presence. And all the way to the end of Scripture, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus promises to all those who believe in Him, to Him who who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Yes, by their sin, our first parents were cast out of paradise and you've been banished out of God's presence, dear sinner. But in Christ, God calls you back. And when you trust in Christ, He brings you back to a far greater paradise. He reclaims sinners. God didn't give up on Adam and Eve. And oh, dear sinner, He hasn't given up on you. There's nobody that hears the gospel if you hear the sound of my voice today. If you hear this gospel message, there's nobody that can say, I'm too far gone. I'm too far from God. Oh no, God calls to you today to be restored. He keeps pursuing fallen man till he brings him back into his presence. He does this at the beginning of Genesis, throughout Genesis When the human race had become so wicked that God wipes them out with a flood, yet He spares Noah and his household and brings them to worship and to serve Him. And then later on calls Abraham and sets aside the Hebrew people as His people who will live in God's promised land, in God's presence, in God's provision, under God's protection. He's bringing guilty sinners. He's reclaiming them and bringing them back to Himself. So the book of Genesis teaches us that God in grace pursues guilty sinners to bring them back to Himself. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 5-6 when he reminds us, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in Romans 10.20 where he says, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Oh dear Christian, remember that before you ever loved God, before you ever desired Christ, before you ever pursued God, God was pursuing you in reclaiming grace. He sought you until He found you, and He brought you unto Himself. Therefore, dear Christians, you who are praying for loved ones, you have children, you have grandchildren, you have family members, you have others whom you are burdened for, you weep for them, your heart is burdened for them, 
they're lost in their sins. Or maybe it's a Christian who is backslidden. Oh, dear Christian, don't give up. Keep praying for them. God pursued you. God subdued your rebellion. God changed your heart. He brought you unto Himself. And if He hadn't done this, you would have never come to Him. Oh, don't give up on them. Keep praying. Take hope in the Lord and cast yourself upon Him. And oh, may He bring others unto Himself. Dear Christian, remember how God pursued and reclaimed you after you descend your worst. He pursued you in love, and now He calls you to pursue Him in love. As Song of Solomon tells us, draw me and we will run after you. God has drawn us by the power of His Spirit in the preached Gospel. Oh, now, Christian, run after Him. Love Him. Serve Him. This is a reclaiming grace. That's the message of the book of Genesis leading up to Leviticus. The God of all grace has come to live with you. He's come to live with you in reclaiming grace. Secondly, in redeeming grace. This is the book of Exodus. Genesis ends in crisis. God has set apart a people. He's promised Abraham and his descendants a promised land where they'll come and live with God. But at the end of Genesis, they're not in the promised land in God's presence. They're stuck in Egypt. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. Outside of the promised land... Outside of the blessing of God's presence and provision and protection, stuck in Egypt. They can't make it out of there to God's presence in the promised land. But God won't stop. He'll redeem them out of this slavery. And in this redeeming grace, God destroys their enemies. And He destroyed your enemies, dear Christian, as He tells us in Deuteronomy 26, so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and signs and wonders. When God came to redeem and to bring His people out of Egyptian slavery, He brought down the most powerful world empire, the Egyptian empire with His Pharaoh, brought Him down to His knees, broke Him down under ten mighty plagues as God rained down those curses upon the land until Pharaoh was willing to let God's people go. We sung about that this morning in the 105th Psalm. This is a foreshadow of exactly what Christ has done for us. Remember at the cross, He spoiled, He ransacked principalities and powers. He broke Satan's power over us. All of us were under bondage of Satan before we were in Christ. And Jesus speaks of this in Luke 11 when He says, When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoils. Just like Pharaoh, Satan was a strong taskmaster over us. We could never break his power. We could never break the slavery of sin, the bondage of sin, living on and on and addicted to our sins and following the lust of the flesh and in bondage. 
In bondage to the very powers of darkness, children of wrath, walking according to the spirit of this age. But here comes Christ, the one who is stronger, and He, there at the cross, as He crushes Satan's head, He overthrows him. He he makes that glorious jailbreak, that glorious spiritual exodus to bring us out of Satan's power and redeem us unto God. Delivers enslaved sinners. In the book of Exodus, He delivers them by the blood of the Lamb. In the Passover, which God ordained in Exodus 12, He says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. He tells them to sacrifice that lamb and paint the doorpost and the door of their house with the blood. And God promises, Remember, now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I Strike the land of Egypt. So as God visits death upon Egypt, and you could hear the screams of death in the midst of the night, all of the Hebrews were safe behind those blood-stained doors. They were redeemed and spared and set apart from the Egyptians by the blood of the Lamb. And this foreshadows Christ's great deliverance of us out of spiritual Egypt. And this is a striking foretaste of our life in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he tells us that one motivation to purge out the old leaven of sin is this, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. In redeeming grace, God destroys your enemies, dear Christian. God in Christ delivers enslaved sinners. He does so by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And all this is to bring them and to bring us to live with God. He's bringing the Jewish people out of Egyptian slavery to live with God in the promised land and even on the way to the promised land. God comes down upon Mount Sinai and then in the tabernacle to live among His people. That's what he tells us in Exodus 25, 8. He commands Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God is redeeming His people out of Egyptian slavery so that He may live among them. God has come to live with you. The God of all grace has come to live with you. So Exodus teaches us, the book of Exodus teaches us that God in grace pursues enslaved sinners redeems us by the blood of Christ the Lamb, and by His Spirit frees us from the slavery of sin to come and live in the blessedness of God's presence. I ask you, dear unconverted ones, you who live in sin and love your sin, don't you long to be free? Are you getting tired of who you are? Are you you becoming sickened by who you are? 
so hopeless in sin, such a dismal future. You've tried to change yourself. You, you've done better maybe in this way or that way, but you've still got the same old rotten heart. Still got the same miserable ways. And when you really see yourself for who you are, isn't it disgusting? Oh, that's how it is for us all when we come to see ourselves as the sinners we are. Oh, dear sinner, don't you desire to be free? Not to be a slave of sin, but to be free and to live as you were created and intended to live in the happiness and the fullness of joy in God's presence. Oh, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Partake of Him. Trust in Him. And come into God's presence and enjoy this fullness of joy forever. Yes, there's pleasure in sin for a season in Egypt, but come out of spiritual Egypt. There are pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Dear sinner, the spiritual exodus is happening right now. And just like that night when the children of Israel started to move out of the land, the exodus is happening. If you're going with them, you better go now. The exodus is going on this moment. Oh, dear friend, this great and mighty exodus in Christ and by the power of His Spirit is happening right now. He's redeeming a people from all corners of the globe. He's redeeming dear ones among us. And that's why we've had the number of baptisms that we have, praise God, the last few years. It's because Christ is bringing about this exodus. Oh, be part of it, dear sinner. Come on. Come on out of Egypt. Come on now. Come and be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Come and live in the fullness of God's presence forever. Dear Christian, the book of Exodus reminds us of the freedom that God has given us in Christ. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom from the bondage of sin. And He's freeing you more and more from sin until the day that He will free you completely. You'll never sin again. You'll be free from the presence of sin forever. You'll never be tempted to sin again. And He who has begun this good work in you, He who first freed you from the bondage of sin, will perform it. He will continue to free you until you are perfectly free. Don't lose hope. And now in this wilderness journey, dear Christian, be putting sin to death and take every precaution, take every... Every means, use every means that you can not to be in bondage to any sin. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. Just like the Israelites were bought with that price of the blood of the Lamb. Just like... Hosea had to go and pay a price for Gomer and buy her off of the slave block. Oh, God has bought you with a price. He's delivered up His own Son for us all. You see what great price He paid to bring you out of spiritual Egypt. Now, dear saint, as Paul reminded the Galatians concerning their former legalism, do not become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't allow yourself to be controlled or addicted to anything. 
be controlled by anything sinful. God in Christ has set you free, and now be free indeed. This is God's redeeming grace. But the book of Exodus itself ends in a crisis. They haven't yet been brought into God's holy presence to dwell with Him and He to dwell with them because at the book, the end of the book of Exodus, God has come down upon Mount Sinai. He's given the instructions to Moses about building the tabernacle and we read how that God said, I will dwell there in the midst of you in the tabernacle. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. But at the end of the book of Exodus, it tells us, in Exodus 40, 35, that Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the the cloud rested above it, that is the cloud of God's glory, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, the old covenant mediator for the people at that time, the go-between, the one who would go and talk to God on their behalf, even he couldn't enter in to the tabernacle. And so here they're redeemed out of Egypt to live in God's presence, and now they can't enter God's presence. They can't live with God because they're guilty, unholy sinners, and God is good and holy and cannot dwell with iniquity and sin. But thank God in the book of Leviticus, as the God of grace has come to live with you, He has come in reconciling grace. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. It zooms in on this remedy. It resolves the crisis that comes about at the end of Exodus when Moses cannot enter into the tabernacle. And it shows us through Christ foreshadowed in these sacrifices and priesthood that God has a way to pardon guilty sinners and to bring unholy sinners to live with Him in the full enjoyment of His presence. Here God speaks, and God answers a question that no world religion can answer. In Leviticus 1.1, God calls to Moses out of the tabernacle. That's how the book starts. God is revealing His truth that man would not be able to know otherwise. And in this, he's answering the question raised in Psalm 24.3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall dwell in His holy place? Moses can't enter in at the end of Exodus. None of the people can enter in. They can't dwell with God. They're unholy sinners. And the book of Hebrews points this out and emphasizes what it was like when God came down upon Mount Sinai and There's the tabernacle just below Mount Sinai. It says in Hebrews 12, they could not endure what was commanded, and if as much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and tremble. Even Moses was terrified at the holy presence of God, for he himself, Moses, was a sinner. But God has a way even for guilty sinners to be pardoned and to enter in 
to his presence. You see, what they needed was a perfect law keeper to represent them. They needed a perfect representative. We read in Leviticus 26 those those wonderful words where God says, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Isn't that a wonderful promise? But when you read the whole context, it'll scare you to death because the context of this promise is God is saying, if you walk in my ways and if you obey my law, then I will dwell in your midst in the tabernacle and I will not abhor you, etc. And he goes on right after this. There's not only covenant blessings in the old covenant, there are covenant curses and they are hair raising as God Gives them volley after volley of curses that shall fall down upon them. They'll be uprooted from their land. They they won't even be able to survive with the basic necessities of life. God will strike them with plagues, with enemies, with weakness. And the problem for Israel is, you read the rest of the Old Testament, they don't walk in God's commandments and keep God's law. And they call down all of these covenant curses upon themselves. So the reverse becomes true of them where God will not dwell in their midst as God's presence leaves. Leaves the temple later on because of their idolatry. And God turns them over to their enemies. What they need is a perfect representative to keep that law for them. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. And this is seen in types and signs. In the whole book of Leviticus, including the tabernacle itself. Remember how John tells us in John 1.14 that the word... After he tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he tells us, or or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells us that Word who was God, that Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. As we see the true fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this in Christ, remember just like Paul said about the rock in the wilderness that gave forth the water, and they drank of that water. Paul says that rock was Christ. In the same way, we say that tabernacle was Christ. Christ signified. One way is concerning its singularity. There was only one tabernacle. There was only one place that guilty sinners could approach a holy God. And it was at the tabernacle in the way that God had commanded. We can see this sign pointing to Christ or type pointing to Christ concerning the paradox of this tabernacle in Leviticus. If you looked upon the tabernacle on the outside, that holy sanctuary of God where God's presence was, you would see a large tent covered in badger skin. That's what, that's what comprised the outside of the tabernacle was badger skin. Nothing glorious to look on. A, a common cover 
wasn't like the pagan temples overlaid in gold and, and the outside is full of gold. No, it just looked common. And we remember when our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that men saw Him. Those who looked on Him merely with the physical eyes just saw a common man. All they saw was His true humanity as He did take unto Himself our true humanity. But that's all they saw of Him. And Isaiah 53 describes this, For He was... He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. That's why the Jews said of Christ in John 6, 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he then says, I've come down from heaven? Most of the people in Jesus' day did not have the eyes of faith to behold him for who he truly is. All they saw was what is common to us, which is our common humanity, as Christ is of one substance with us concerning His humanity. He is truly human. But for those who had eyes of faith to behold Him, just like if you were to walk into that tabernacle, yes, the outside is common badger skin, but inside there's the golden furniture of the tabernacle service. And there's that dazzling sevenfold flame of the menorah, of the seven golden lampstands burning, and the, the glorious, dazzling light reflecting from those golden pieces of furniture. Those who had eyes of faith to behold Christ could say with the Apostle John, We beheld his glory. Peter says to you who love Him, He is precious. And you know, just as believers in Christ's day knew, that He, who is man truly man according to His humanity, is God truly God according to His divinity. And that in that one person is united forever His true Godhood with His true manhood one Savior and the only Savior for guilty sinners. This is how God brings human beings, sinful, guilty human beings, to live in His presence. It's in and through Christ signified in the tabernacle itself. No longer will they be shut out, but now the priest will be able to come into this tabernacle And this very priesthood signifies Christ, as Hebrews 4 tells us, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
If you were an Israelite on the Day of Atonement, you would be standing outside the tabernacle. You could never go in there. But the priests went in there every day into the holy place. And on that special day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the holy of holy places. He could only go in there one time a year. And he goes in sprinkling the sacrificial blood, symbolizing and looking ahead to the blood of Christ. And that priest enters in. And he has on his breastplate 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He carries them into the holy place on his heart. And he intercedes for them. And if he fails, their sins will not be forgiven. But if he succeeds, their sins are put off for another year. And he'll come back out and there's the announcement that the work is finished for this year, for the Day of Atonement. And the people rejoice. That priest has gone in where we can't go and he has represented us to God by the blood of that sacrifice. Oh, what a picture of Christ. Our great high priest who didn't have to go back every year. He'll never die again. He'll never suffer again. But he's entered into his glory and he's once for all finished our redemption. This is how you can be brought to live with God, dear guilty sinner. And forever, all of us who are saved, all of us who are in Christ, will live in God's presence without fear and without the least guilt, without the least shame. Sinners that we are, because Christ is our high priest and He has perfectly represented us to God And we're able to enter into that heavenly holy place, which is the reality. Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle and all its signs, all its priesthood and sacrifices, those were copies of the heavenly reality. We're able to enter into the holy of holies forever in God's presence and live with Him because Christ is our high priest. He signified in the sacrifices. And Hebrews 9.12 tells us that not with the blood of goats, and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is reconciling grace, where God sends his only begotten Son to live and die for guilty sinners so that we may be brought back into fellowship with God. And enjoy Him forever. So the book of Leviticus teaches us to be reconciled to God in Christ. And when we read Leviticus 26, those great words we read earlier, I will set my tabernacle among you. Read it in Christ. Read this in Christ. Hear it in Christ. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And in the new covenant, this is what Christ has done for us and as He fell under all the curses there at the cross, we received the blessings that Christ deserves. We're brought into life eternal, which Jesus told us that this is life eternal to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism that man was created to live with God in eternal happiness and praise and glorify Him.
You've been redeemed, dear Christian, to live with God in eternal happiness. And you'll live with God forever because of what He's done for you in Christ. Until that day that Revelation 21 tells us in 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is your whole eternal future in Christ, dear believer. Take hope in it. And oh, dear sinner, come and live and be reconciled to God. Oh, dear sinner, turn from your sin. Oh, dear lost sheep, Christ comes to you now. Christ the shepherd comes to you in the preaching. Come to Him and come back to the fold. Oh, sinner who sinned against God so grievously, even like Gomer did against Hosea. And yet, here comes God in the gospel. Here comes that great Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, right now in the gospel, to reclaim and to redeem and to bring you back to God. Come on and come back to God. He'll receive you. This is what God does from Genesis to Revelation all through Scripture. He saves guilty sinners like you. Oh, come to Him, dear sinner. Just like Christ that day came to visit crooked, dishonest Zacchaeus. He says, I'm coming to stay at your house today. I must come and stay at your house today. And that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Oh, dear lost sinner, come to Christ And come and live in this joy in God's presence forever. And to all you who turn from sin to Jesus Christ, God promises, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Amen.